the special ed department at the school hadn't even heard of dyscalculia, even though it's between three and 8% of the population has it. So it kind of averages out to, you know, we say 5%, one in 20 kids. So one in every classroom has a dyscalculic adult or child in there, but they didn't know much about it. And so I started feeding the special ed teacher like resources I was finding online. I was just like, <laughs> I think that was my full-time job at that point. I'm researching online. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. This is the last new episode of this winter spring season. And to close it out, I'm sharing my conversation with Laura Jackson, a mom, writer, and advocate. Laura helps families struggling with dyscalculia move from confusion and overwhelm to understanding and connection. So Laura's passion is to provide advocacy, coaching, and encouragement for overwhelmed parents and discouraged children who feel alone in their journey with dyscalculia. She also wants to create a safe place where parents can understand and appreciate their child's uniqueness and where connection and empathy and meaning can be made in the midst of this challenging learning disability. In this conversation, Laura shares insights from her new book, Discovering Dyscalculia, One Family's Journey with a Math Disability, which was inspired by her own family's journey of getting her daughter's diagnosis, how they navigated working with the school, and finding strategies that work for her beyond her education. Laura also shared many, many strategies and many resources for parents who want to learn more about dyscalculia and the early signs that they can look out for if they suspect their child might be struggling with it. This is the first episode we've done on dyscalculia, so I'm very excited to be sharing this today. And just a quick thank you again. Thanks for being a part of the Tilt community. Thanks for listening. Thanks for helping us reach that 4 million downloads milestone for this show and for celebrating six years of Tilt Parenting with me. And I'll be back with more new episodes soon. But of course, there's one more to listen to for now. And that is the following conversation on Dyscalculia with Laura Jackson. So here you go and enjoy the show. Hey, Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Debbie. It's fun to be here chatting with you. This is going to be just a lovely conversation, and I'm honored to be your first podcast interview. Your book is important, and I really think fills a gap in, you know, what's available for parents. And so when I found out you were writing it, and, you know, we've been in touch for a while, I was really excited to to bring you on to talk about it. But usually I have guests tell me their personal why and all of that kind of stuff, but your personal why is really your story. So I would love if you could just give us a little bit about your story. As we were discussing before I hit record, this wasn't your plan to be writing this book, I'm sure, when you became a parent and go down this journey. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be doing this? Yeah, that's that's funny. I once heard a therapist say that our values in life come out of the places of joy and places of pain. And so I think about that when I think about how the book came about and even just my work with parents who have children with dyscalculia. And when my daughter was nine years old, she was in third grade. And that was uh, when I really started wondering why she was struggling so much in math. And she had been struggling previously. And looking back, knowing what I know now about dyscalculia, I maybe would have recognized it sooner, but I really didn't. As a parent, I thought, 
you know, all kids learn differently and they're at their own pace. And I wasn't stressed out about (laughs) the things that were happening so far. But in third grade, she was very bright, articulate, loved school, and was really struggling with math. And this was after receiving two years of pull-out help at school. And I was having lunch with a friend, and she mentioned to me something about her own math learning disability. And I thought, I I mean, I'm kind of embarrassed about what I thought at that point. I thought, you can't have a learning disability in math, can you? It's so black and white. And I Googled it and found understood.org's website. And the description of dyscalculia matched my daughter to a T. I, I remember just staring at it thinking, oh, my goodness. So that started the journey of learning more, reading everything I could find on it, which honestly wasn't a whole lot available. Um, Most of what I found was coming out of the UK, but that really started this process of learning about it and then eventually getting her evaluated privately and at school. That's the the journey of the dyscalculia. The book happened because a couple of years ago, our our family made a, a big pivot and we moved out of the city to a kind of a quieter pace of life. And I quit my job in real estate. I was working part-time and I started reading through Julia Cameron's The Artist Way book. And it's all about unblocking parts of creative parts in yourself that are blocked. And I started writing every day. And as a part of that writing, I started a blog and I thought, I'm just going to start sharing about dyscalculia. And at that point, we were in, she, my daughter was in sixth grade, and we were in the middle of a lot of changes. And so I was just writing one to process my own, like story and what was happening. And two, I knew there must be someone else out there like us, who were having a similar struggles. And I could not for the life of me find another blog online that was writing about dyscalculia from like a personal point of view. So one thing led to another, a GHF press found my blog, reached out, and an editor asked if I'd write a book. <laughs> and I, you know, maybe I wanted to write a book in like the next 10 years of my life, but I, I hadn't imagined so soon and during a pandemic, but I decided to say yes. I thought they're going to, they're going to help me write a book. So let's do it. And it was a really rewarding process, actually for processing my, our own journey and also just realizing how far we had come in that time. And so really all that happened just during the pandemic. And here we are. That's awesome. That's a great story. Another example of parent creating what they needed and, and it really is generous then for everyone else to follow. I want to go back to, you know, kind of earlier in your story, because he, first of all, it's lovely that you had a friend who who mentioned a math disability. Like we all have that friend who says something that connects the dots for us. And, you know, like, oh, oh, like there might be something going on here. And then we can kind of go down that rabbit hole. But you said that you then realized that there were things that you were seeing that your daughter had struggled with in math that you you didn't realize was dyscalculator or, or some sort of math disability. What were some of those things? I'm just wondering, what are some of those signs that a parent who's listening to this might be thinking, hmm, I wonder if this is what's going on with my child? I think I'll start back at some signs that now I know were signs of dyscalculia and even as early as kindergarten. 
And the dyscalculia experts now say that it can be and should be. It's great if it's discovered in kindergarten and first grade because the help can begin so much sooner. So as a small child, she was never really interested in numbers. And, you know, she was interested in a lot of other things. So I wasn't worried. But looking back, uh, her counting sequences would often be off and she would kind of laugh about it. But it was almost like counting one through 20 as a young child. She either couldn't do it or she would mix up numbers. Kindergarten, the teacher said to me, she's not keeping up with her math as well as the other kids. Well, I didn't really like our kindergarten teacher for other reasons. <laughs> and so I didn't pay a whole lot of attention. And I thought she's a very, she was a very bright kid. And so I thought, I just didn't register that you could be learning disabled and, <laughs> and bright. Just honestly, that's how it was at that point. Now I know differently. And then in first grade and second grade, the teachers started sending us home with flashcards for simple addition and subtraction that they said she should know by heart. And she also started receiving, they said, you know, she's kind of struggling with just some of the regular math. Why don't we put her in a small group, you know, outside the classroom? We'll do some extra stuff a few times a week. And we thought that's great. You know, like math's not her thing, but let's get her some extra help. So she was already having trouble with those. Um, And then in third grade, what we are seeing is there was a multiplication drill every Friday. And she, the whole year, she could not get past the one times tables for her multiplication while all of her friends could do all of them, you know, by the end of the year. And even we're just, we're making progress. I think there were a couple of the two times tables she knew, but honestly, she went through the whole year unable to fill out the worksheet and her anxiety about math was starting to go through the roof. So she was starting to worry. I remember her being in tears and asking me, mommy, am I stupid? And (laughs) I knew she wasn't stupid, but I didn't know what was going on either. And at home, we were doing flashcards, simple ones. Like I would ask her, what's four plus two? And she would give me six. I would immediately say, what is six minus two? And she would have no idea. Like the idea of switching those numbers, it just didn't make sense. Another really telltale factor is reading a clock. She had a really hard time reading an analog clock, whether it was at school or home. I mean, I would get frustrated and I would say, don't they teach you to (laughs) read a clock at school, you know? And then I would work on it at home. And she was always confused by the numbers on the clock. And I remember later reading about this and all of these things, there is a reason why that happens. But clocks, for example, a clock is really a number line that's been pulled into a circle. And dyscalculates do not have a number line in their head like most of us do, where we can just kind of see the numbers in which order they're in. And you can kind of move up addition and subtraction in your head, but they don't have that number line. And so that's confusing. And the other, when they're seeing number line, they get confused about whether they're counting the lines or the spaces between the lines. And I know that sounds crazy, but it really is something that is confusing to them. So when they look at a clock and we're measuring, you know, that whole space between the one and the two to be the one o'clock hour, they don't see it that way. There's just this arrow in the middle of nowhere and they have to guess, is it a one or two 
you know, they don't have a sense of that. So those were some of the really early signs. Some ones that I didn't know that were happening, but after I started noticing, I could tell that this was happening. She couldn't subitize, and that means like to see a small quantity and know what it is instantly. And you'll see this right away with dice. So I didn't know, but she was actually counting dice, the dots on the dice to know when we played games to know what number it was, where the rest of us, we can basically look at any dice up to six and instantly know what number it is. So that's another sign with Discalculix when they're playing dominoes or dice games. They often will still be counting on their fingers And there's so much controversy on this online. But basically, if they're still counting on their fingers when their peers have moved on to other methods, that can be a sign that they haven't learned other more efficient ways to count other than using their fingers. So that was another thing we noticed. And she was starting to become aware and hiding them under the table to count. There was confusion with with dates and time. So even if we weren't using an analog clock, and you were looking at a digital clock, and if it was 10.50, we'd, you know, be like, oh, we have, you know, 10 minutes till 11. She was just like, what? You know, like that didn't make sense. And for a dyscalculic, it's hard for them to know, to remember that there's 60 minutes in an hour. So that's one thing that's difficult. And then you just have these numbers that just even the sight of a sequence of numbers is so befuddling (laughs) to their mind. It can stress them out and they don't know what they're looking for. So those are some of the things that started popping up later. We also noticed shortly after we learned she was dyscalculic, there were certain board games that were very stressful to her and that she never could never win at. So connect four, you have to be able to see when there's going to be four dots in a row and kind of change your play Well, she couldn't instantly see that there was four. So unless she's going to sit there and count each one with her fingers, um, she was just popping in coins to the the grid. And uh, there were some other games like that. Pente, she couldn't instantly see the numbers. And then even some strategy games, like our family enjoys playing uh, Settlers of Catan. And we realized all the math that was involved. Any given moment, she had to see how many of a certain type of object another person had and do a math calculation in her head. And she hated that game until we realized why she did. And we've come up with some alternative ways. So now she enjoys it. But those were some other things that came up. There's more. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure there is. But you're giving such a good picture of what this might look like. And it's so many things that you just wouldn't necessarily, you know, go to that conclusion, as you said, like, oh, there must be a math disability. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. 
The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. You said, ideally, this is something that would be discovered in kindergarten. I know that's the same for dyslexia, which is, you know, more common, and it's pretty easy to identify, yet so many kids go undiagnosed for for years. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey, because we really do rely on schools to flag these things for us, not send home more worksheets, but to understand what's really going on. So what happened in your situation as you started to discover and make sense of what might be going on. How did how did you navigate that with the school? Yeah, well, when I, you know, first read about the description of dyscalculia and and realized it matched my daughter, I reached out to the school. We already had a team. I think it's called an SST team. A team set up for that she was receiving extra help in math. So I met with them and I said, "Hey, I was doing this reading and came across this description of dyscalculia." Uh, what do you think? Do you think my daughter could have this learning disability? And at that point, I didn't know how to approach the school. Going backwards, I learned later that they weren't allowed to tell me, oh, you should get your child evaluated, at least in the school district we were in. And I found that out later. So they didn't say anything. They just said, the teacher confirmed, your child is trying way harder than everybody else and isn't getting the math. And the math specialist who had been working with her for a couple of years now, she was a real advocate for us. 
but they all just agreed there's some huge math problems here. And the conclusion was, let's wait until fourth grade and see what the teacher says. Well, this was halfway through third grade. And I thought, okay, because I just didn't know any better. So I started reading. And the more I read, I thought more time is not going to help this child if she really does have dyscalculia. And so at that point, I reached out to some parents who had navigated the school systems for the child with dyslexia. And I said, how do you do this? How do you get the help you need at school? And so they let me know, you have to request. (laughs) You have to officially request that your child be evaluated at school. And so I jumped through all those hoops, which took, I mean, she didn't get evaluated till the following November. So it almost took nine months to get through that. And meanwhile, another parent said, you need to have your child privately evaluated because the school will have their own evaluation, but they really just are testing for what services do we need to provide your child? And you're going to have a much better picture if you have a neuropsych eval done on her. And so we were really grateful to get in with someone. And it was a a nine-month wait list as well, but so worth it. Uh, We had that after the school evaluation. So the school, I would say, honestly wasn't very helpful. And I think one, their hands were a little bit tied. They had so many students they were evaluating. And when they looked at my daughter initially, they didn't want to test her because they said she loves school. She's doing well. She has friends. And basically her her, um, scores were coming in average because she was doing so well in some areas and really poorly in others. And it just kind of averaged her out. And so she was not someone they were worried about. So I had to play that really uncomfortable role of which probably most parents on <laughs> your podcast have had to play where uh, really standing up and saying, no, something, something is off. And, and we need to figure out what that is so we can get her the help she needs. And so she was evaluated. She did qualify for an IEP with, you know, they didn't give a diagnosis, but they just said she qualifies for help in math because she has received all this help and is not progressing as her peers are. So they set up an IEP. But one struggle with that was that the special ed department at the school hadn't even heard of dyscalculia, even though it's between three and 8% of the population has it. So it kind of averages out to, you know, we say 5%, one in 20 kids. So one in every classroom has a dyscalculic adult or child in there, but they didn't know much about it. And so I started feeding the special ed teacher like resources I was finding online. I was just like, I think that was my full-time job at that point. I'm researching online. We did that for the rest of that year and the following year. And really, my daughter made no progress in math. She had such a lovely, nice teacher, but who didn't know a thing about dyscalculia. And I didn't either. So I thought, well, you just have to help them in math the usual way. And the problem is what I've learned now is that dyscalculics, they're wired differently and they need a different way of learning math. And so during that kind of frustrating time with IEPs and special ed, um, that was also when we made a move. And so I was excited about a new school district and their IEP set her up with a pullout math class for a full hour every single day. And I thought that's going to be amazing. And it was not amazing. Turns out they also did not know 
not only did they not know how to teach a child with dyscalculia, there was a lot of trying to be tactful, but not a lot of skills in how to help students with anxiety and the anxiety they were facing because they felt like something was wrong with them. And that wasn't just my own daughter, but it was all the students in the class. After a while of that, my husband and I thought this, her anxiety, my daughter's anxiety had returned. She was biting her nails. She was unable to sleep. She was so anxious about going to school. And I just thought, we can't do this to her. This is causing more harm than good. And I don't know what that next step is, but it's certainly not staying in this class. And so we pulled her out. And in our state, you can do partial homeschool. So what we did is we uh, she stayed home in the morning for homeroom and I taught her math with, I found some books out of the UK and then she went to the rest of the school day at school. That was actually the beginning of something really great actually. And we are still doing that same system now where she's homeschooled for math and science. And then she has the rest of the day at middle school. I really thought in the early days that the school's responsibility, and I didn't realize this isn't how it is. I thought they would let me know if something was wrong with my kid, you know, and I saw other kids struggling at our school and we were at a, I mean, it's a large school district, but we were at a school that had high parent involvement and I would say more, more resources than the average city school. But still I would look at my daughter. I would look at other kids obviously needed extra help and nobody was saying anything to the parents. Like it was, it was strange. And I thought if they're not letting me know, then probably everything's okay. And I quickly realized that's not actually the case. And I hear that from other parents too, whose kids are struggling and they keep saying to me, but I've checked with the school and the school hasn't said anything. And I'm thinking there's a lot of reasons the school can't say anything legally for fear of lawsuits. But secondly, a lot of them don't even have training on various learning differences. So, and especially dyscalculia, math learning difference. I mean, there's just hardly anything out there yet. Yeah, it is. There's so many things that came up as you were talking about that. I'm remembering one of the very first episodes of this podcast I did almost six years ago was about dyslexia. And it was someone who had gotten her master's as a reading specialist. And she said, dyslexia was never mentioned in any of my graduate school courses. And you shared and you write about the fact that you were the one educating the special education teacher on what dyscalculia was. And I think that's where so many of us get stuck. It's a real challenge also for parents who don't have the resources to be as involved. And we are really counting on the school to bring our attention to things or to understand how to navigate. And they're not aware of it. And then your child is also twice exceptional. And you you talk about that in the book. And that is such a common experience, right? That these two-week kids, they learn how to compensate for their challenges or their relative weaknesses. And therefore, they're doing okay, right? And we don't know necessarily that they're how hard they're working behind the scenes to do things or that they are struggling with so much anxiety. I wanted to just ask you a question. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but you said that the school couldn't recommend that you do an evaluation for this or, or look for this. Can you say a little bit more about that? You said it might be your school district, but what have you heard from other families navigating this? Because I don't understand what's really going on there. <laughs> I wish I did too. I can only speak from my experience in 
and talking in two different school districts in our state. So it could be very different in other places. The school definitely could say, your kid is struggling in math and we'd love to give her some extra pullout help. And so they did that. I ended up asking a couple parents whose child had gone through the evaluation process at school and was asking them, why wouldn't the school say to me when I suggested it, let's have your child evaluated for dyscalculia. And I was told by a few other parents that they had had that experience as well. One of them worked for the school district and was told that they were not allowed to suggest to parents that they have their child evaluated for a learning disability. And the reasons could be, what if they suggested that? Well, they represent the school district. And by the IDEA, they have to evaluate a child whose parent has asked. And they're also required, if if the evaluation shows a struggle, they're required to provide that help. So the school district doesn't necessarily want teachers saying that because then they have to follow up in all these ways that they may not want to. They may not have the staff, which is probably most likely they don't have the staffing to take on all those issues. So they could face lawsuit on that point. So say they don't hold up their end of the deal of evaluating and providing services, they can be sued. The other problem could be is what if a teacher says, I think your kid has dyslexia or dyscalculia, what if the parent doesn't want to hear that and they're upset? You know, I wanted to know. I wanted to know what's going on. And that's kind of my personality is like, what's really going on? But, you know, what if the parent was upset with that? They could get upset with the school district and your teacher's making false claims about my kid and legally cause trouble that way. So those are the two, I would just say guesses. I didn't get to hear from, especially that, you know, staff slash parent member, if if the school district explained why they weren't allowed to do that, they were just told they were not to do that. And then when we moved school districts to a smaller school district, I was meeting with some coaches here on the island and they said it's a similar situation. So parents really have to advocate for their own child to be evaluated. So I don't, it's very tricky to me. And I honestly have had so many questions about that. I've started asking people in other states because I'm just wondering if that was a local thing. Or if that is really a problem, like with policy that we have, like a little hiccup. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's it's interesting to hear what you shared, and it does make sense. And all I keep thinking is that it's the students who are the losers in this situation. Because if they are catching these things early, it's really helpful for so many reasons, right? As self-esteem, like so many things that, that can go off the rails if a child has an undiagnosed learning disability. It's just unfortunate that there's so many kind of barriers to getting that information. We'll be right back after this quick break. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wannabe Clutter Free a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. 
So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. You wrote in great detail in the book, the way you kind of navigated this road of getting an evaluation, a private evaluation, finding the right person. I had a lot to say about all, all that because I could, uh, same thing. I was just writing for, there were so many details in it. Like I said, felt like a full-time job. And I was one of those parents where I thought I, w- I at the time was, I think I was just doing, I wasn't working part-time. I was helping my husband's counseling practice in the back end of things, but I was, I was able to give all this time that most parents cannot do and very well aware. So I thought if I can write it down, that could <laughs> help some parents who don't have as much time navigate it much quicker. I do think some changes are happening. Like I know some school districts in some states are starting to do some early screeners for the learning differences like much sooner. And so that could really be a benefit to students who don't have parents that, you know, are not like all over it like I was. And also for parents like me who would have liked to know so much sooner. So I do think there is some positive things happening. I'm wondering if you can share some of your favorite resources. You mentioned understood.org, which we refer to a lot here until parenting. I love those guys and they have been around for a while and are expanding, you know, the resources that they have to share, but any other kind of places that you would direct parents to if they're thinking this is happening? My favorite researcher is Brian Butterworth. He is an emeritus professor at the University London, University College London. And he's written a few books. My favorite book is this one. It's Dyscalculia from Science to Education. It's a bit technical of a read. Mine is more of a (laughs) quick parent read. But he's my favorite person. And you can find, he has some YouTube videos online. If you just search Brian Butterworth, Dyscalculia, he is probably just more at the forefront of research and information. And he's very entertaining to listen to. He has some great, there's some great videos by some people who have interviewed him. He has another book coming out. He told me, so I, 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 we were in conversation about my daughter's dyscalculia and um, his book, actually, before I wrote my book. And I said, you know, these are the people I've been following. I'm following Jane Emerson. She, Jane Emerson and Patricia Bapti have written a few books on dyscalculia and they're educators in the UK. And I'm also following Ronit Bird, who's a dyscalculia educator in the UK and Dorian Yeo. And there's, there's these people and he's like, oh yeah, they're basically all, they all trained under some of the same people together. But those are the people I, I am following the most. In the US, there's Dr. Schroeder of Dyscalculia Services. I just met with her this weekend for coffee. Wonderfully warm person. So she's a doctor and she's really focusing on growing tutors that are trained for dyscalculia but she really understands her 
her stuff and she's a great resource. In the UK, the Dyscalculia Network is really growing. So they're kind of taking all these resources and have given a really great, it's a new website, like literally, I think in the last two years, Dyscalculia Network. So they're combining like, where can you get training for Dyscalculia? Where can parents go? Where do you get tutors? They're doing online teaching. They have a YouTube channel. So there's someone else I love and stay in touch with. I found there's a lot of people who claim to be Dyscalculia tutors online and offer Dyscalculia services. And honestly, when I look at their stuff, I kind of hold it up. These people I follow in the UK are kind of like my filter for because they all match, like how they teach, you know, really matches. Um, Steve Chin is another one who's kind of in with them. And he he does a lot of work with dyslexia. But then he kind of has pulled in the number stuff too. But I kind of hold up when I find someone new who claims to be a dyscalculia resource. Do they kind of match what the, all these other experts are saying? Well, that's great. There's so many good resources. And listeners, I'll have links to all of these in the show notes page. So just go there and you can check all of these out. It's interesting that so much of this work is happening in the UK. That's also the case for PDA, which is something a lot of listeners are exploring. It's very under-resourced in the United States, and there are a lot of practitioners in the UK and in Australia who are really kind of just further ahead in their knowledge and understanding of that. Before we wrap up, you have a chapter in there called Practical Supports at Home that I thought was really interesting. And I'm just wondering if you could share just personally, like what are what is one of the one or two kind of game-changing supports that you implemented in your family to support your daughter? Well, the first piece was, it's going to leak into the education piece, but it was really taking her math understanding back to using handheld manipulatives. Brian Butterworth and Dorian Yeo, they really believe that the main problem with poor dyscalculic minds is that the area in the brain that processes numbers, that it it's they don't know exactly what it is or isn't doing, but it's doing something different than it is in an average mind or the other 95%. And so there's a problem there. And the problem seems to be the lack of understanding numbers as sets. So hard to explain, but like when you see a four or something that is what you would be, whatever is fourness, they don't understand that as a grouping of two and two or three and one, like four is just this number. It doesn't have a something anchoring it as such. So you can imagine when you start to go working out calculations, if you don't have a sense that four is these four dots or two and two or like what that set is and you're combining it with another set, of course, it's very confusing. And you may think, well, they're fine because they can count up. And most dyscalculics can count up. So they may say four, five, six, seven, eight, but they don't have a sense of like two groups of four. So really the hands-on materials really help solidify some of those, that understanding of number being a set. So that's practical for school. But at home, one tool we use that's very practical is the time timer. And probably a lot of your listeners use it. It's really helpful for lots of learning differences. But we use the time timer to because it's a visual timer. So my daughter has been using it so long that she can have a sense of how long she has. In fact, 
for this podcast. We went to set it so she would know how long to be quiet in her room while we met. So she can visually see and it really gives her a sense of like how long an hour is, how long 30 minutes is. And she's come to recognize that because it takes her so long to look at a clock and one, figure out what time it is, but then figure out what would be 20 minutes from then and then hold that in her mind. You know, it's it's very complicated. So if she can set her time timer for getting ready for school, for knowing how long to do her homework, how long till we leave. It's like it's like one of her best friends sitting on her dresser. <laughs> I explained more. Their time timer just put out a guest blog that I wrote just explaining a little bit more in detail why it helps. But another real practical tool we use at our house is we have Welcome Industries visual measuring spoons. And they're, instead of just different sizes, like the teaspoon is a circle, a half teaspoon is a half a circle. And she loves those. So the kitchen can be very daunting for her and overwhelming. But when she pulls out her little spoons, she, it just gives her more confidence. And she just feels like she understands what she needs to grab to measure whatever she's making. So that's another practical thing. We've modified some games, so we love to play Settlers of Catan as a family. And now, because she can't look at each person and know what their point score is, we have we each have a little dry erase board in front of us that we've just made with tape and paper. And it is the five dot patterns. That's something I didn't talk about that's really important. But um, dot patterns really help dyscalculics have a sense of numbers as sets and recognizing numbers without having to count each one. So we have the symbol of the um, number 10 and we color it in as we're playing the game. And so at any moment she can look around the board and see how many points everyone has from our board. And now she really loves the game um, because it has a lot of strategy and critical thinking and reasoning, which she's very gifted in. So she can really enjoy that part without being stumbled by calculating. So dot patterns, I would that was that's another practical tool that helps with learning, but also just all sense of numbers. And Ronit Bird has an ebook, it which is where we learned it, and it's very colorful. It has little videos. If you have dyslexia, it's kind of a lot of words, so I wouldn't recommend it for <laughs> that situation. But anyone else, dot patterns help dyscalculics understand numbers as sets. Also, be able to look at a quantity and know how much there are. And also just to be able to visually, in their mind, imagine subtraction, addition, multiplication with the dot patterns. That's been a huge, huge help for us and also other families that I've worked with. Um, Very simple, but very complicated at the same time and very helpful. So great. You've shared so many awesome resources. And again, I can already tell this is going to be a very long show notes page, but that's great. I love being able to direct people towards more information. I would also say at the end of the book, I listed most of those resources, I think, in the back of the book. So if you miss anything, they'll be in there. Awesome. So listeners, if this is something that you are suspecting you're dealing with with your kids or your child has a math disability and you want to learn more, I highly recommend checking out Discovering Dyscalculia, One Family's Journey with the Math Disability. It's Laura's new book. It's out as you're listening to this. Check out Laura's blog. Where can people see your blog and connect with you on social media or anywhere else? Yes, I made my website easy so you don't have to spell Dyscalculia, but my website is lauramjackson.com. And on there I have 
a few resources for parents. I do teach a parent class. And then there's downloadable PDFs of where to find teaching uh, resources, good recommended reading. So you can find all that there. And then I'm on Instagram at Discovering Dyscalculia and Facebook, the same Discovering Dyscalculia and just started Twitter. Same thing, (laughs) except for it's D underscore Dyscalculia. Excellent. Okay. Again, those links will also be in the show notes page. Thank you. You shared so much. We got through a lot of my questions. I had three pages of questions, so I'm very <laughs> pleased with how much we got through. And I know there's so much more we could have talked about, but I just want to say thank you so much. First of all, congratulations on writing the book and thank you just for everything you shared. You shared so many strategies and ideas and just lots of things for parents to be thinking about and paying attention to if this is something that they suspect might be going on with their kids. So thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We'll be in touch. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into this episode, check out the show notes page. Every episode has a dedicated show notes page on my website where you can get links to all the resources we discussed, read a transcript, and even easily go back and listen to key takeaways by using the chapters feature on the podcast player. To get to the show notes page for this episode, just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this show. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform for this show, my wonderful new editor and producer, Andrea, and more. It's so easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. If you're into social media, you can follow Tilt Parenting at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter. Visit the Tilt Parenting page on Facebook or join my Facebook community called Tilt Together. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact invented. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel 
real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not gonna wanna miss an episode. Unsticking it with Blair and Molly because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking.